Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 27 of the podcast in which we will discuss chapter 5 of Prince Caspian, titled Caspian's Adventure in the Mountains. And if you'll remember, we left off last time in chapter 4 with Trumpkin's story that he's telling the Pevensey children about how he came to be at the ruins of Caer Paravel, how he came to meet them. And he starts by uh, explaining the backstory of Caspian, the title character. And um, in the last chapter, he explains how Caspian grew up on a healthy diet of storytelling, of uh, the history of old Narnia, and how he grew uh, to have a love of the old things, which is a, a... a running theme in this book is the the fact that the past is always present and always with us, as Devin Brown argues in his book, uh, Inside Prince Caspian. Um, and he uh, was taught the stories of old Narnia by his nursemaid, his usurping uh, uncle, now King Miraz, uh, banishes the nurse and hires Dr. Cornelius to be his new tutor, which is an ironic move. Uh, because unbeknownst to King Miraz, Dr. Cornelius will even even more uh, than the nurse advance the love in Caspian for the old things and the old Narnia. And in the last chapter, uh, he takes Caspian up into this secret spot at the top of this great tower. They ascend together where Dr. Cornelius confides in Caspian who he is, that he is half dwarf and half Telmarine. Um, And he uh, confesses that all of the old stories are true, and he secretly informs Caspian of who he is and who the Telmarines are and of the existence of all these old creatures and these old Narnians. And at the end of chapter four, uh, there is this beautiful speech from Dr. Cornelius I want to reread because it will serve as this foundation for the remainder of Caspian's adventure in this uh, novel, especially in chapter five, as Caspian flees the castle uh, at the announcement of King Miraz's son being born. King Miraz and Queen Prunaprismia have a son. Uh, This news um, is being heralded in the kingdom, and Dr. Cornelius can foresee what this will mean for Caspian, that he is now, as he says, in the way of Miraz. And so Dr. Cornelius will uh, urge Caspian to escape in the middle of the night, And that uh, serves as the beginning of or the inauguration of Caspian's adventures abroad, where by the end of chapter five, he has happened upon a cave that houses some old Narnians, including Trumpkin himself. But the end of chapter four, Dr. Cornelius uh, has this following speech where he gives that he gives to Prince Caspian, where he uh, recounts his own yearning and longing for the old stories to be true. And that yearning, that ache, uh, will serve a major purpose in chapter five. Caspian says that uh, it wasn't his fault that the Telmarines conquered the old beasts, the fawns and the satyrs. And Dr. Cornelius says this, I'm not saying these things in blame of you, dear prince. You may well ask why I say them at all, but I have two reasons. Firstly, because my old heart has carried these secret memories so long that it aches with them. It would burst if I did not whisper them to you. But secondly, for this, that when you become king, you may help us. For I know that you also, Telmarine though you are, love the old things. 
Caspian says he does, and then asks Dr. Cornelius if he believes there are any more of these uh, old Narnians and talking beasts in existence. He says, do you think there are any? Dr. Cornelius responds, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I'm afraid there can't be. I have been looking for traces of them all my life. Sometimes I have thought I heard a dwarf drum in the mountains. Sometimes at night in the woods, I thought I had caught a glimpse of fawns and satyrs dancing a long way off. But when I came to the place, there was never anything there. I have often despaired, but something always happens to start me hoping again. I don't know, but at least you can try to be a king like the high king Peter of old and not like your uncle. And with those words ringing in our ears, we move into chapter five, Caspian's Adventure in the Mountains, where Dr. Cornelius's hope, this hope, he says, that um, something always happens that starts him hoping again, will be reignited for the reader. Because as Caspian flees, by the end of the chapter, he has discovered face to face the existence of these old talking beasts, these old Narnians, uh, this old way of life that uh, we thought had been uh, eviscerated by King Miraz and replaced with this dull, stale uh, portrait of modernity, this tyrannical uh, government that Miraz has set up. Caspian discovers face-to-face the existence of this old world that he's come to love so much and thus uh, manifests or embodies uh, all of the great things of Dr. Cornelius's hope. So at the beginning of chapter five, Caspian's adventure in the mountains, we're told that Caspian and Dr. Cornelius had many secret conversations on the top of the great tower, which is another beautiful reminder for us of how education really occurs, that sometimes we're uh, doomed to think that education is what happens in the transactional world of a classroom, that a teacher teaches and a student studies, and that's it, that there's this sort of um, stale transaction of information. Uh, that can just simply be offered by a master and downloaded by a pupil. uh, And that represents what education is. But here, the good things, the real things, the true things, uh, are the things that are passed from confidant to confidant, from master to pupil, from sage to student, um, and often in conversation and in dialogue. It isn't a mere matter of worksheets and dates to memorize that real education is a matter of trust and loyalty. And Dr. Cornelius takes Caspian up to the top of the tower and up there at this heightened elevation, at this uh, heightened perspective where Caspian is able to see farther, Dr. Dr. Cornelius is able to open his mind and teach him uh, the real beautiful things of the story, not just the superficial things. And we're given this paragraph of all of the things that Caspian learns. Uh, For example, he learns sword fighting and writing, swimming and diving, how to shoot with the bow and play on the recorder, to hunt the stag, etc. He learns cosmography, rhetoric, heraldry, versification, history, law, physics, alchemy, and astronomy. Uh, There's this laundry list of subjects that Caspian uh, is studying. And it's it's a really interesting portrayal of the sort of education that equips a king. How do you teach a king? How do you train a generation to assume the royal, noble positions for which they are destined? Which, if you think biblically, that's the call for all Christians, that we are all co heirs with Christ, uh, kings and queens of the realm, that we are all. 
uh, given this particular position in creation. Um, all the way back in Genesis, we see the dominion mandate that man and woman in the image of God are called to rule and govern over, steward all of the things that God has made. And so uh, how do you teach someone for that? How do you equip them? And beautifully, this list goes much further than just a mere matter of information. Uh, it is an exhaustive and total education. And reading through the list of skills and the list of subjects he studies, you see uh, this recollection of both the classical tradition, where he has taught rhetoric, he's taught law, he's taught history, but also this chivalric tradition, where he has taught the sword, he has taught to uh, ride and to swim and dive. He's given these skills of warfare, skills of fitness. Uh, and given everything Lewis loved about the medieval world, uh, it's not an accident that we see Caspian being educated in this rich way of being prepared for life in both this classical education and this chivalric education that Caspian is um, being educated as a full person, not just as an information holder, right? Lewis said that we are not to educate. Uh, it's not like filling a bucket, but it's like irrigating a desert, that's what education is, that you are enriching the entire person. You are feeding the mind, certainly, with information, knowledge, but also the heart and the body. You're feeding the total person, not just one half of the person's brain. Uh, and this, again, is uh, equipment that we need to uh, redeem in our world of education, that we are training kings and queens, and so we need to act like it. But at the beginning of that paragraph... Uh, we find out that Caspian, as he learned more about old Narnia, began thinking and dreaming. This is a quote from Lewis. Thinking and dreaming about the old days and longing that they might come back. Longing that they might come back. And that thinking and dreaming filled nearly all his spare hours. And Lewis is not describing this as uh, looking out the window, you know, daydreaming the, the fanciful thought patterns of a young boy. That Lewis is describing this as... Um, an honorable thing to be filling your day with longing and dreaming and yearning for the days of old, because the, the boy that is taught to dream for the heroes of the past and taught to desire the noble life yearning for the life of chivalry and of honor and of code and bravery is the man who will enact those codes in his daily living. That's the point that what we in our modern context might see as uh, a restless child who can't focus on his studies but is uh, dreaming of grander and more idyllic worlds, uh, and we might be led to dismiss those, Caspian yearning for this old age, yearning for this heroic ideal, is doing exactly what he's supposed to do. That the boy who longs for that is the man who will build it the man who will commit his hand to the plow, the man who will dig the trenches, the man who will uh, become the heroes he admires as a child. And, and this is something that I think we miss, that uh, what Dr. Cornelius is doing every single time he leads Caspian up to the top of the tower is training a boy for his manhood. And this picture of Caspian yearning for uh, the return of these old days and yearning for these heroic lives and this great story is the contrast of Miraz, right? This, this uh, 
dull and prosaic ruler. Uh, at the end of that paragraph, uh, we're told that Caspian isn't taught much about navigation because King Miraz, quote, disapproved of ships and the sea. He disapproved of ships and the sea. This is, this is an effectively castrated portrait of man. This is man in sterility, man who has been neutered and robbed of what makes him a man. Miraz, as a king, should most certainly approve of ships and the sea, of adventure and of uh, glory and of, uh, of enriching the world and broadening his horizons and, um, and creating an atmosphere in which life abroad can thrive. Uh, but here he disapproves of ships in the sea. He is much more likely to hunker down in his own station and govern it cruelly. But Caspian is the one who longs for the ships in the sea. And, we, and we'll see a, a, a wonderful reminder of this in the next book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Caspian will do just that. He will take up the helm of the Dawn Treader and go out on this high seas adventure as a king, which is what he should do. He goes out to find the seven noble lords of Narnia who are missing. And so this contrast between Caspian and Miraz is important, especially for all of the, uh, the young boys and girls who read these books, that it is important for us to not shy away from the callings of our manhood and our womanhood, but to embrace them wholeheartedly at a young age and to fill our waking hours with longings and dreams. This longing, Lewis talks about a great deal in Surprised by Joy, uh, this word sinsucht or joy is this uh, undeniable and irresistible ache uh, and longing at the deepest parts of our soul for we know not what. It's this, uh, it's this undeniable desire we have for something more than just the stuff of earth. Uh, in Mere Christianity, Lewis says, if, if I find in, my, in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And Caspian was made for another world. He was not made for this, uh, this modern, monochrome, tyrannical world. He was made for the world of the old Narnia, the living, wondrous world. Uh, so uh, as, as the story unfolds in the chapter, this is quite a, uh, an eventful chapter. Cornelia, Dr. Cornelius wakes Caspian up in the middle of the night and informs him that he has to escape now. And Caspian is bleary-eyed and, <laughs> and wipes the sleep from his eyes and asks if he's going for another astronomy lesson. And Dr. Cornelius says, no, the, it's a cloudy night. This sort of ominous mood surrounds the castle. And Dr. Cornelius tells him that he is the true king of Narnia, Caspian X, uh, the true son and heir of Caspian IX, and that Miraz, his uncle, the usurping uncle, has killed his father. And uh, Caspian says, would he really murder me? Uh, would my uncle really murder me? This, this threat that Dr. Cornelius is informing him of. He says, yes, he would. He murdered your father. And he tells him he has to escape the castle because uh, King Miraz and Queen Prunaprismia have had a son. And now Caspian is in the way of the line. And throughout this whole book, Lewis does a lot of allusion. Uh, he makes a lot of allusions to uh, the the history of monarchy and so on, this sort of political uh, tradition that queens having sons uh, is a very important matter and uh, that often there is political 
intrigue and controversy when it comes to who is the rightful heir of a throne. Um, and he tells Caspian that Miraz was content to uh, raise Caspian because he, Caspian was the only uh, re- the only possibility to continue his dynasty. But now that he's had a son, Caspian represents a threat to that dynasty. And so he's a threat that must be done away with. So Dr. Cornelius tells Caspian that Miraz has weeded out all of these, uh, these figures who had any uh, loyalty to the old Narnia. And all he has left are a group of flatterers, a group of yes men. Uh, and now that he's having a son, Caspian represents that last threat. And so Dr. Cornelius says, you must run away. He tells Caspian to be brave and that he must ride for Arkenland. Uh, which is the realm to the south of Narnia. And before Caspian leaves, he, he Cornelius ushers Caspian out to the secret garden uh, where he can get on his horse and ride uh, under the dark of night. But before he leaves, he gives Caspian two gifts. Uh, and the second one is the really crucial one. The first is a little purse of gold. Uh, but the second one is Susan's horn. And Dr. Cornelius says, that is the greatest and most sacred treasure of Narnia. Many terrors I endured. Many spells did I utter to find it when I was still young. It is the magic horn of Queen Susan herself, which she left behind her when she vanished from Narnia at the end of the Golden Age. It is said that whoever blows it shall have strange help. No one can say how strange. Uh, And this is a a wonderful connection back to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where we saw Father Christmas give Susan a very important gift of the horn. And Susan blows that horn in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when she's attacked by Maugram and Peter comes to her rescue. And now this horn has been preserved over a thousand years, uh, which we know because Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy discovered the ancient treasure house at Caerpiravel, but the horn was missing. And so now we discover that Caspian has the horn. Uh, and later on still we'll discover that he blows it and that... Uh, horn blowing is what summons the Pevensey children off of the train platform and into Narnia. So this is beautiful um, preservation of this uh, ancient gift and this wonderful continuation of the uh, first book to the second, where we have this relic, this horn that uh, Caspian was given. And so he gives uh, Caspian the purse and the horn and tells him to uh, escape into the night. And as he escapes the castle, uh, Lewis says, King Caspian the Tenth, which interestingly he refers to Caspian there by his regnal name, King Caspian the Tenth, left the castle of his fathers. Looking back, he saw fireworks going up to celebrate the birth of the new prince. And so this is another one of Lewis's powerful images where he shows, um, in this case, by showing it upside down, just how wrong everything is in Miraz's Narnia where the fireworks that are celebrating the prince um, are celebrating as the rightful prince, the rightful king, Caspian, is escaping for his life. So this image of fireworks, which ought to be a joyful image of, of regency, of kinghood, uh, of kingship, of, of uh, the right heir to the throne, is occurring at the very moment Caspian is fleeing secretly to, sa- to save his life. And in the following paragraph, Lewis gives us this wonderful uh, tension in what Caspian is feeling as he's riding out on his horse. 
Lewis says all night he rode southward, choosing byways and bridle paths through woods as long as he was in country that he knew. But afterwards, he kept to the high road. Later on, he says, uh, Caspian felt brave and, in a way, happy to think that he was King Caspian, riding to seek adventures with his sword on his left hip and Queen Susan's magic horn on his right. But when day came with a sprinkle of rain and he looked about him and saw on every side unknown woods, wild heaths, and blue mountains, he thought how large and strange the world was and felt frightened and small. So the tension here for Caspian is that on the one hand, he has become the stories that he loves. He, he is King Caspian riding on his horse with a sword on one hip and Queen Susan's horn on the other. You can, you can picture uh, his own illustration of these fairy tales he was raised on where uh, he has a sword ready for battle and he has Queen Susan's horn connecting him to these ancient kings and queens of old Narnia as he's riding out into the woods on his horse. It's this wonderfully romantic and fantastic image uh, for him that he is now living and he's embodying the story. Uh, but Lewis also commits to the realism of this adventure where he certainly feels brave and in some sense happy that he is now a figure in these stories that he loves. But he also feels frightened, especially when day, came, day arrives, that through the night it's wonderfully romantic and he's riding on his horse, but when day comes... And he's able to see clearly that he's surrounded by unknown woods and wild heaths and blue mountains, that he feels how large and strange the world is, and he feels frightened and small. And this tension is important for Lewis, where certainly it's right for boys and girls to uh, long for the enchantment and the magic of these wonderful stories, but they also must be equipped to uh, be brave as they face the dangers and the fears that are incumbent uh, with those stories. Uh, in one of his essays on writing for children, Lewis says, since it is so likely that they will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. So uh, Lewis says it's inevitable that children will grow up to become men and women who will meet cruel enemies. And, and Caspian has, his own uncle is out for his life. But uh, because he has been given this, this constant stream of stories of courage and heroism and bravery, he is equipped for that, though it doesn't completely dispel the fear. And this is what we need to give our own children, this, this twofold gift of adventure, a love for adventure, but also the knowledge of the bravery adventures require. That you, can't, you cannot have one without the other. Uh, to have this sense of courage and bravery with no obstacles, with no challenges, is, uh, is foolish. Where you, There's nothing to overcome. There's nothing to be courageous about. Um, but yet, at the same time, to have this longing for adventure and longing to overcome great obstacles and longing to defeat great enemies without the, need, without the bravery required to do so is also foolish. So Caspian has to have both, and he does. This longing, this, this enchanted longing for adventure, but also the, uh, the steadiness and the wherewithal to recognize how dangerous it actually is and the courage to summon up to meet it head on. 
as Caspian's riding through the woods, um, he is he is caught in this great storm, uh, and it is a storm that uh, that descends upon him. We're reminded of this ancient uh, conflict between the Telmarines and the natural world. Uh, that there's something living in these woods that seems to surround Caspian. Uh, and he is knocked out. When he awakens, we conclude this chapter with the introduction of new characters, three new characters. And all three of them are the, are, are, uh, the embodiment of this old Narnia that he loved. We meet uh, the badger, Truffle Hunter, and we meet two dwarfs, the black dwarf, Nicobrick, and the red dwarf, Trumpkin. And of course, it's the Red Dwarf Trumpkin that is is telling this story to the Pevensey children. Uh, as Caspian is coming to himself, uh, he overhears these voices arguing over what they should do with him. Um, and we start getting to know the particular personalities of each of these characters. Uh, and finally, he comes to himself and recognizes that he is, uh, he is interacting with these old Narnians. Uh, the ones that he and Dr. Cornelius had always hoped to find, Caspian is in the very presence of. So this marks a real uh, transformation in the plot where what we with Caspian and Dr. Cornelius had been longing for, this ancient world that we thought uh, was gone forever and outdated, is still living, albeit underground. And finally, as Caspian comes to himself, he tells his story to the two dwarfs and to Truffle Hunter. Uh, we get to know Nickabrick uh, and his sour t uh, temperament, his, um, his gloomy and pessimistic outlook. But we also get to know Truffle Hunter and uh, Trumpkin. And it's their conversation that really, uh, really affirms a lot of the value of, of Caspian's longings and yearnings for the old Narnia. Truffle Hunter says this, you dwarfs are as forgetful and changeable as the humans themselves. I'm a beast, I am, and a badger, what's more. We don't change, we hold on. I say great good will come of it. This is the true king of Narnia. And we beasts remember, even if dwarfs forget, that Narnia was never right, except when a son of Adam was king. And Tr uh, Trumpkin's seems to disagree. He says, you don't mean you want to give the country to the humans. And Truffle Hunter says, I said nothing about that. It's not man's country. Who should know that better than me? But it's a country for a man to be king of. We badgers have long enough memories to know that. So here's this really interesting perspective from the old Narnians that uh, Truffle Hunter remembers that uh, that Narnia was only in its rightful state when a son of Adam was on the throne, which is, this is another uh, connection back to the line, the witch in the wardrobe and care Paravel, where Narnia was always meant to be governed by a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve. And we'll learn when we get to the magician's nephew, we'll learn more about this, about how Aslan established a human king and queen at the very outset of Narnia's creation. And then of course the, the, um, Prophecy was always that sons of Adam and daughters of Eve would, would sit at Care Paravel and undo the curse of the White Witch. So Truffle Hunter here is, is betraying this uh, knowledge of these old prophecies and this old, uh, these old truths of Narnia that he has not forgotten. And it's connected to this biblical truth. I mentioned already the Dominion Mandate, this 
notion that uh, man and woman were given unique positions as rulers of the earth, um, governors of the earth. And, and this line is also used in Milton's uh, Paradise Lost, where he's, he describes Adam and Eve as lords of the world besides. Uh, that that man and woman are the only creatures who bear the image of God. Uh, and so for Narnia to adopt that same sort of uniqueness for sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, that those who bear the image of God are the ones who are destined to rule. But their rule uh, ought to be uh, a rightful one in which the talking beasts and the trees and the fawns and the satyrs and so on are all respected for their roles. And so the fear, especially that Nicobrick has here, is that man will rule again as a fallen ruler, which is what we have in Miraz, that, that it's given to man and given to woman to steward God's creation, but we are given to steward it correctly. And what happened in the fall is that we, uh, when we fell, when we sinned, all of creation fell as well, this Paul talks about this in Romans, that all of creation itself is groaning for the day of redemption. Um, and so for truffle hunters say it's not man's country, that the world does not belong to man. We did not create it. Narnia is not ours to pervert or to manipulate or to control in our own selfish way, but it is a country for us to be king of. And so truffle hunter is alluding here to this rightful ordering of authority that God established in the very fabric of creation. Truffle Hunter is affirming this design that is biblical uh, of how God has woven authority and hierarchy into the very means of his creation. Uh, and and Trumpkin and Nicobrick, as the dwarves are having a difficult time reconciling this because of their fear of Miraz. They've seen uh, totalitarian, uh, disordered rule from Miraz. And so the idea of putting Caspian on the throne uh, is something that they're suspicious of, especially Nicobrick. And Trumpkin uh, begins to doubt here. He says, do you believe all those old stories? Trumpkin says, we don't forget, I believe in the High King Peter and the rest that reigned at Care Paravel as firmly as I believe in Aslan himself. And so you see in Truffle Hunter that these old Narnians who have been marginalized and pressed underground by Miraz still retain, at least in part, this uh, respect for and this admiration for the old stories, this love of Aslan, this respect for the High King Peter. But also... Lewis includes among these old Narnians a mistrust of those old stories, that not every old Narnian that has been forced underground continues to hold out hope for Aslan and for Peter and so on. And Trumpkin says a very interesting line here. He says, as firmly as that, I dare say, said Trumpkin, but who believes in Aslan nowadays? And the key word in that question is the word nowadays. As though Trumpkin is, um, is assuming that a belief in Aslan may have been sufficient at one point in time. It may have been something uh, mystical and something uh, religious or superstitious that an ancient world relied upon, but that is now outdated. And the number one sin of modernism is to hold to something that is outdated. 
I, I mentioned in a previous episode how the modern age is riddled with uh, an addiction to innovation, an addiction to a fast-paced means of life where newer always equals better. Uh, and Lewis, especially in The Abolition of Man, if, if you ever read that book, Lewis certainly aff- uh, affirms the opposite, that uh, often it is the old things that are, that are the things that stand the test of time. Um, that we cannot commit the sin of chronological snobbery, Lewis says, which is to believe that the newer world is automatically the better world or that um, the older something is, the more inferior it is. Uh, And so here, Trumpkin seems to be falling into that fallacy by saying uh, a belief in Aslan now is ludicrous. Who believes in Aslan now, right? That sort of faith, that sort of belief is now outmoded and archaic. Uh, but Caspian here is the one who in, interrupts, and he says, I do. I believe in Aslan. And if I hadn't believed in him before, I would now. Back there among the humans, the people who laughed at Aslan would have laughed at stories about talking beasts and dwarves. Sometimes I did wonder if there really was such a person as Aslan. But then sometimes I wondered if there were really people like you. Yet, there you are. And I want to close with this because this is an important statement from Caspian where not only do we have this culmination of Dr. Cornelius's hopes in the previous chapter that that the old world, the world of talking beasts still exists, that it isn't extinct, that it's still real and still true. Caspian knows firsthand that it is because he's witnessing them. He's there among them. But Caspian links uh, this sense of faith and the sense of reason, uh, which Lewis, uh, there are all sorts of um, connections that can be made between Lewis and uh, other thinkers that Lewis admired, like Chesterton and Aquinas, um, where this marriage between faith and reason is important, uh, that they are not divorced categories, like we like to think of it now, that you can either be a man of faith or a man of reason. Lewis saw those things as, as married. And for Caspian here, he says, the faith I have in Aslan, I had prior to an experience that he believed it even before he saw it. But Caspian says, the fact that I see it now is an affirmation of the faith I had then. That he says, I sometimes wondered if there were really people like you and here you are. And so there must be something reckoned between the stories of Aslan and the stories of the talking beasts of Narnia and the present experiences of it. Um, and there's a, there's a passage in John where uh, the, Jesus heals the blind man and others question, them about, question him about Jesus. Uh, and the blind man says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And so the blind man here says, I I can't tell you everything about who Jesus is. I can't give you an exhaustive philosophy and investigation of who this man is. But one thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. And Caspian is doing the same thing here. He says, whether or not there is an Aslan, whether or not he's real, whether or not he'll return, I can't say completely, but I believe it. And I believe it just the same as I believed and you all, I, I was told there were talking beasts of Narnia, and here you are. 
So I was also told of Aslan, he may, just ex- he may exist just as well. All right. The one thing I do know is that the stories I had been told are starting to come true in experience. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. And so this opens up the great possibilities of Narnia where the love of the old things that Caspian and Dr. Cornelius shared may not be this fanciful escapist love. That it may be the very faith that is necessary to anticipate future experiences. That we may need to rely on these old stories. We may need to uh, nourish and cultivate this love for Christ and this love for the old stories so that we may be equipped to experience rightly the uh, encounters we have yet to face. That there, we, we have to have a well-cultivated uh, garden of hope and faith and belief so that when we face new experiences uh, that are inexplicable, difficult, challenging, foreign, that we have a, a well-nurtured garden of faith that we can uh, rely on and stand on so that we can anticipate the hopes of the future. And at the end of the chapter, um, Trumpkin and Caspian, uh, he uh, prepares to take them to go see the others. Um, uh, Caspian discovers that in these wild parts, all sorts of creatures from the old days of Narnia still lived on in hiding. So we are about to follow Caspian further into uh, the hiding place of the old Narnians. Uh, as we discovered that all of these old stories that Caspian had grown up loving are finding their reality, are, are coming true. <laughs> to put it that way. Well, thank you for uh, listening to this episode. Be sure to tune in next time as we look at chapter six of Prince Caspian titled The People That Lived in Hiding.